Welcome to STEMiverse podcast episode 27. In this episode, Peter and Marcus talk with Peter Mahoney. Peter is Manager of Education and Digital Learning for Sydney's Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. He leads program direction and delivery for the museum's school learning experiences, including ThinkSpace and the Mars Lab, coding and game design. As learning leader for Mars, a lean startup approach involves staging punk learning design experiments in partnership with young people and school educators or the co-design of bespoke learning experiments. He initiated Sydney's first Mini Maker Fair back in 2014, which has since evolved into an annual event. He has a Master of Teaching, a Graduate Diploma in Music Therapy, a Bachelor's of Arts. Peter's background is performing and community arts. Back in the day, as performer and musician, he toured nationally and internationally with Castanet Club, including the Edinburgh Arts Festival Fringe, and nationally with theatre and cabaret shows. Currently, Peter sings tenor in Sydney Gospel Choir Cafe at the Gate of Salvation. This is Stemiverse Podcast Episode 27. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. This podcast is brought to you by Tech Explorations, a leading provider of educational resources for makers, STEM students and teachers. For a limited time only, go to texplore.com slash stemiverse and receive Peter's latest ebook, Maker Education Revolution, a book about how making is changing the way that people learn and teach in the 21st century. Hey, Marcus. Here yeah, we are back with another episode. I think this is 27. Yeah, 27? Wow, well, we're getting on. Uh, we only started like, wait, last month? Or is it longer? When yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was back in March. So I'm having a really good time here. Like all these amazing people that we talk to. Uh, I also wanted to check, how's your Bitcoin going? Oh, oh. No, I've got to check. Have you checked the price lately? I bought $400 worth of uh, Bitcoin, <laughs> thanks to our last guest, yeah. uh, Kieran. We do have a free trade. I am now using that uh, Australian Bitcoin company, and my $400 is now $429.77. There you go. Making a profit already. Great. I couldn't convince the wife to uh, <laughs> move our entire savings bet, over bet to the house. Bitcoin. Bet the house. Anyway, um, yeah, let's talk about that later. Now we've got uh, a special guest, uh, Peter Mahoney from Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, which is one of my favourite museums here in Sydney, and the kids love it as well. So uh, welcome, Peter. Really nice to have you on. Uh, thanks very much, Peter. Hi, Marcus. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Great. Could you take the next few minutes and tell us about you and um, what brings you to our main topic for our conversation, which is STEM education as you do it at the Powerhouse Museum? Sure. Okay, so uh, at the museum, my actual title is Manager of Education and Digital Learning. But, you know, really my, my small but enthusiastic team and I are responsible for all the school's programs. That's what that means. There are five of us who work uh, full-time and... Uh, then we have a team of about 15 or at the at powerhouse about 15 educators who work for us on a casual basis we have about another 10 at sydney observatory and m- many of us will also work at the museum's discovery center so that's the overall capacity and uh i've been there as a genuinely as an accident because i came there in the mid 90s to do a computer music facility which was connected with the real wild child exhibition history of rock 
music in Australia, and I've never left. Basically, <laughs> um, you got trapped. Okay, I was on a, Well, I kind of um, I surprised myself really that I'm still there, but it it is fascinating, and I find there's a lot of opportunity to really think deeply about technology and learning, and these are things that I'm very you know, deeply interested in and passionate about. Could you tell us about your background? Did, did you actually start in education uh, or did you somehow, by accident, as you said, ended up in it? So uh, at the end of uh, last years of high school, they used to do, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to do this kind of test where it was a multiple choice twet test and then they, they were kind of assessing your suitability for different, you know, work roles. That's what that kind of guidance you know, was at that time. And I did that test and afterwards they sat me down and they said, you'd be um, suitable to be like a teacher or, and I went, no way. <laughs> like that is like that, I'm not doing that ever. And um, and so I, I then embarked in a kind of performing arts um, and community arts career. I was very interested in music and writing songs and playing music and you know, had some great opportunities uh, to travel and tour and perform around Australia and even internationally. And then in between gigs, because there's always in between spaces when you're a, a performer, um, I fell into like teaching people guitar and I then I got involved in the Bondi Pavilion's community arts programs and I found myself... Um, going to remand centres for kids and teaching them, you know, rock and roll songs on guitar or whatever it was and and then working with people with disabilities in, in music programs and I was kind of enjoying that. I still didn't see it as teaching. And so when the opportunity at the museum came up, I thought, oh, well, this will be just a bit of fun for a little while to do this. An in-between thing. Yeah, that's right. And then um, over the time I've realised that that, multiple choice assessment wasn't actually that far off. I just needed to find my own way to what that really meant for me, which yeah. was like, because that wasn't a formal kind of school context for me. I've still got a lot of issues with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you don't have any formal qualifications in teaching, right? The, uh, you, you evolved or developed into the role that you are in now. Uh, I certainly evolved and developed. I've got a Bachelor of Arts degree. I've got a graduate diploma in music therapy, and I do, in fact, have a Master's of Teaching for oh, my sins. Right. So, but that that's happened along the way, rather than right, me yeah. planning to do those things. Tell us about what's happening now, or at uh, in in your line of work. What kind of teaching do you do? So I don't do as much face to face teaching these days, although I still meet people who say, didn't you show us how to do a music video with Sony Acid and Vegas like a hundred years ago? And indeed, I did that for a long time and things like that and literally have taught thousands of kids in the museum context and not only school groups, but also vacation programs and that kind of stuff. The teaching that I tend to do now, the, the front-facing stuff, tends to be with teachers. For example, I'm uh, liaising with some teachers, Debbie Evans at Bond, she's now at Bondi Beach Public School, and we're organising a, a teacher. Uh, it's not quite a teach meet, but it's a bit like a teach meet, and that'll be on Saturday week at the museum. So the museum will host it, and we've got a range of teachers presenting, and I will give a short presentation as part of that. For our teachers who don't know what a teach meet is, what is a teach meet? Uh, teach me, sorry. Um, yeah, please pick me up on any jargon if I have any. Uh, so a teach meet is basically teacher run, free. It's like a meetup group for teachers essentially, but it's but it's not. It's not regular like a meetup group. It's occasional. So any anyone can run a teach meet. Most people will pick a topic for the teach meet. Um, the next one we're going to run on the 23rd of November is probably, I think, uh, teach meet interactive, which will be at the museum. So you pick a topic. You then post a, a Google sheet with some time slots in it. You then promote it via the teach meet uh, website and teachers then will uh, propose 
um, ways to fill. They're probably seven minute, and you might have a combination of three minute and seven minute slots. So, so it's free. It's teacher sharing practice and things that are of interest. Um, and then often there's socialising and going for a teach eat afterwards. Right. Hmm. It's kind of like bar camp for teachers with uh, yeah. lightning talks. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a sort of picture or... Yeah, and, and they're, they're all many and varied. Like sometimes they're in a school. There's been many that have been run in pubs. Libraries have had them, you know, all kinds of community settings for them. And they're a great opportunity for teachers to just kind of like think in public about their work and get reflections back from others and also share some experiences that might have been successful for them. So how has your teaching these days changed from when you first started? Uh well, when I first started, um, okay, so one something has, has remained the same, I suppose, that uh, my primary focus is on skills rather than content. So I, um, you know, when I was running, you know, music production or video production um, experiences, in there might be connections to exhibition content or collection content for some people. And, for example, the, the first lab I started in was a MIDI lab, and that related thematically to the, to the Real Wild Child Contemporary Popular Music Exhibition. But quite often, uh, kids were coming just for the skills that they would learn. Like at that time, these technologies were, were just sort of breaking through. They weren't that regularly on everybody's laptop. They weren't regularly in every school. And not all teachers were au fait with them yet. So the, the approach was always very much about what, what do you want to do? What do you want to make? Here are some tools that might be useful. And that, that stayed very much the same. I think what's changed a lot is attitudinally, I'm much more about um, providing the maximum amount of choice in the experiences that we provide for the young people. I think previously I used to scaffold things quite tightly, so it was a step one, step two, step three kind of thing. Now my approach is much more I want to create a space or an environment or present some affordances and then really collaborate on what outcomes are going to come from that. Hmm. How do you do and prepare for that? Um, Well, you do your best to have you have your own capabilities your your competence the things you know how to do and so there's a there's a backbone of your um, enthusiasm and your confidence to deal with technology and to take it in places that might you might not have taken it before and then the second thing is about the open mindedness which is something that we really try to practice so we try to ask questions rather than make statements. We try to connect the experience of thematically of looking at some exhibition content or some museum collection content with the affordance of some technology and then say, what do you think about this? Where could we take this? We've got this much time. What would you like to do? And then we kind of shape the experience. That's ideal. That's what we're trying to do. Does that make sense though? It does make sense. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of that, Peter, uh, I want to explore museums in a bit more detail and the role in education today, not just delivering education, but also shaping it. So uh, I suppose there's, there's two parts of my question. The first one is, in general, how do you see museums changing over the last decade and going forwards and I say that after visiting museums such as the Exploratorium in San Francisco and the and of course the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney which are kind of um, like unique in their own right uh, very hands-on places a lot of science but also arts and uh, things of that sort and then I also like to explore specifically what is the Powerhouse Museum doing in Australia and not just in STEM, but in the way that it's shaping and influencing education. Mm. So I love the Exploratorium. I've had the opportunity to visit there uh, twice, once since it's been down on the wharf in San Francisco. Uh, And 
One of the things I really love the most about the Exploratorium is about halfway along the wharf, you come to the tinkering studio on your right, and on the left is the actual workshop where they build the interactives for the um, exhibits. So to me, that's really beautiful. Uh, I love the idea that you can, first of all, look in and see these lathes and saws and all these kind of amazing machines, sometimes being operated, sometimes just being there. And you can wonder when you are experiencing one of the interactives, you know, what machines were used to build the elements of that interactive, but you can also go into the tinkering um, lab and and actually build your own interactive or your own project or model. Could you tell us for our listeners that perhaps haven't heard of it, what is the Exploratorium? Sure. The Exploratorium is one of the world's best science centres. So it's, a, it's, it's not a collection-based museum. It's about understanding phenomena. So it's more like Questacon probably hmm. in Australia than, in than the Powerhouse Museum. Yeah, that's right. Um, so Questacon is all about, you know, push this, you know, drive that, turn that on, see what happens, uh, interact with that phenomena. And the Exploratorium is also that type of a, of, a, of a place where you get to learn by doing, I suppose. So how's, how is uh, the Powerhouse Museum, you know, fit in that area of more like a hands-on interactive kind of museum instead of the classic ones where everything is behind glass and you look at it, you look at the description and move on to the next item? So the difference is that the Powerhouse Museum has a, an amazing collection of over 500,000 physical objects <laughs> or things, and that's why we need the aircraft hangers yes. um, to store everything. And it's been collecting that stuff since 1879, so there are some incredible treasures and incredible examples of people's ingenuity and also endurance ability to kind of persevere and struggle uh, to solve a problem or to explore an idea. So Powerhouse starts from a somewhat different place to the Exploratorium, which which would consider gravity or light waves or some other phenomena and then think, how can we manifest that in a way that a visitor could could explore that, whereas we tend to look at these objects as thinking objects or thinking things, like they're evocative in and of themselves. So we, uh, like, I don't know if you, either of you have a pet, but I've got a dog and sometimes I, when I take my dog to the park around the corner, I'll, every, people will know my dog's name and we might have seen each other at the park and I'll know their dog's name. And we might talk for quite a while, but I mightn't actually know their name, but they're just my neighbour who's got um, Bonnie, the blue healer. And um, so in that way, the dog acts as a – and this is an idea from a a museum practitioner that I'm inspired by who works in San Diego at the Museum of Art and History. Her name is Nina Simon. She blogs about this kind of stuff on Museum 2.0. And she would say, and I feel this too, that the dog is a – a conversation starter. And I think that museum <laughs> objects are also like conversation starters. And so rather than, um, and this gets into a bit more of the next part of your question, I think. So rather than me say, you know, write a little, a curator, write a little label that gives you some factual information about, you know, who made this and when it was made and where it was made and what it was first used for and what materials are in it. I'm much more interested in having people, so we would use a tactic like see, think, wonder, and we would look at something and say, hey, everyone, can we just spend a few minutes just start silently checking this thing out that's right in front of us here? And now that we've had time to have a bit of a think about it and a look at it, can we describe this like scholars, like experts, like we really, like the little details were some things that it was important that we agreed on the names of. So could we actually start to kind of really look at this in in a sort of slow learning kind of way, you know, like slow food? And actually, 
enjoy this thing because normally we're in a bit of a rush and we've got a lot of things to see, but I want to reverse that and just say, just for a few minutes, let's just concentrate our focus here. And having kind of brought forward like words that relate, that are describing words of this thing. So I'm wondering, has anybody got any connections to this already, like before they came here or that that is springing to mind? Could we share some of those? Hmm. Um, From an education point of view, this would be bringing forward prior knowledge. So this would be actually people might have personal understandings and experiences of things, but I want to ventilate that. I want that out in the open uh, so that I can enjoy that fact that, that I can tune in to the visitor a bit more because I know a bit more about where their, where their level of interest and experience is. And the third element, the wonder element, would be about, so, okay, now that we've spent this time in this sort of like scholarly way, considering this object, just like museum experts do, just like historians or scientists would do, is it is there any, any kind of like random imaginings in your mind? Could we hear some of those? Like what next or what if? And so I would love to then hear the kind of theories that might emerge as a result of done the, spent this kind of quality time with this evocative object. So... If, if I got this right, while the exploratorium is geared towards hands-on learning, so learning by doing, Powerhouse Museum seems to be geared towards learning by discussion or by providing a social context for people to talk about an artifact that is right in front of them. There, there could be, for example, uh, in my last visit, I spent a lot of time with my kids looking at that Mars rover exhibit that you have. And we're actually talking about it, like looking at the rover in context. Uh, that can spark a lot of discussion. That's after they watched the uh, the Martian, the movie. So it was quite oh, yeah, a hated discussion. <laughs> yeah. So is that like a, a fair like description of what the Powerhouse Museum's style is? Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful illustration of what I'm trying to talk about. And we would, you know, when we're doing it with uh, with school groups who book in, we would use the phrase mediated dialogue. Hmm. So we understand that uh, and and people will often expect us to know a lot about the things. And to be honest, we know a lot about some of the things and not so much about other things because there's a lot of things. Um, 500,000. But, <laughs> 500, yeah. but, um, but that's not the point. The point is that Together, we might have a conversation that will never happen before and will never happen again, hmm. but that is, is interesting to all of us and respects the fact that all of us are at different places on a kind of a level of interest. But at least my opinion, even though I might not know anything about the Bolton and Watt steam engine or the Mars lab, now that we're talking about it, this comes to mind. Maybe yeah. I've seen the movie The Marsh or whatever, or maybe I built a thing in with the lego robot is that like that you know so we could have that chat so it's what uh, there's a university professor at arizona state university called james paul g he's a linguistics professor but he's very famous for writing about learning and games Hmm. and he would talk about a game uh, he uses world of warcraft and he uh used sim city but i'm i'm sure he would apply it to minecraft and other things And he uses the phrase passionate affinity space. Hmm. And then he describes the learning attributes of a passionate affinity space. And and an online game is often affording those kind of like positive attributes. For example, you can come and go when you want. You choose to do it or not to do it. You can come in at a low level of skill and just kind of lurk and observe uh, or you can be a like super high expert, and at either of those points, you might find yourself helping somebody else out, or being involved in a conversation. Uh, and there's no the the hierarchy can be quite fluid in that situation because I might only know one thing in Minecraft, but that might be the thing that someone asks. So he kind of, he, I, I kind of think at its best, 
that's what the museum experience can offer, that kind of thing of feeling, uh, pursuing my interest, yeah. feeling a part of something, engaging with ideas, what Seymour Papert would kind of say, you know, it, it's about falling in love with ideas. That's what he would say education is about, yeah. Do you have any more of those awesome ninja, I guess, mental mind concepts? Like uh, you had look. Oh, yeah. Uh, so see, think, wonder. See, think, wonder. Thank you. Yeah, I do. I've, uh, but I'll, I'll take you to the mother load there. So these come from Harvard's Graduate School from, for Education and a, and a major project which has just celebrated 50 years called Project Zero. And one dimension of Project Zero, which is called Visible Thinking Routines, and See, Think, Wonder is one of the core visible thinking routines. And it's, uh, uh, that's a, there's, a, there's a visible thinking Sydney teachers group now that only started sometime last year and we participate in that. And we apply the routines as a, as a kind of tool set to, to driving these mediated dialogues. Some, most teachers would know Think, Pair, Share Think per share is one of the core routines, um, but a, another really great one is what makes you say that. They're very simple um, ideas, and there are some which are about um, opening up creativity, like step inside. Like if you were the, the Mars rover, what would you see? How would you feel? What would you say? Hmm. Um, and there are others that are more about, I said they're, they're beautiful. They're, they're, it's beautiful work. And um, it's kind of come from the classroom to the university and then captured and consolidated at the university, a little bit of branding, a little bit of theorising to develop it and then pushed back out to the classroom again. Brilliant. We'll have to check it out. Hmm. So these, are, these, are, these routines are the worksheet killers that we need to always be putting forward to teachers for alternatives. So what, what do you mean by worksheet killer? Uh, Still very popular, but I'm going to just say I think a kind of a lazy approach um, is to make sure when all your kids come to the museum visit, they've got a worksheet with 20 questions on it where they're going to have to find this and find that and find out that about this and that and write some stuff down and then you'll kind of have a sense of like maybe they've learnt something because they've filled in the worksheet. And after, like, literally 20 years of sweeping these things up on the floor, <laughs> I, 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 just, I just know that that's not what helps learning for most kids. And so I, I know it's harder to, to sort of slow down and spend the time actually engaging with young people. It is, you know. It is. It's, it's, uh, sometimes I have to really kind of say, go and do it. Um, because it is harder work, but I'm interested in actual learning. So I have to be committed to that approach. So these strategies are what we recommend to teachers to consider as their way of uh, optimising the museum experience for learning. Hmm. Awesome. Well, that opens up a lot of questions. Um... I'll ask you a simple one, Peter, and then we'll try to uh, find a way uh, through whatever comes back. Um, where do you think education is heading? Jeez, <laughs> bloody hell. <laughs> Just to lighten up a little um, bit the discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gosh. And you can, like, you can contextualize it, you can say in Australia, you can say globally, you can... You can uh, say in the context of STEM, um, I will leave that up to you, but I, I just want to know for somebody in your position with uh, the history that you have and uh, coming in contact with a lot of teachers, a lot of students uh, coming to the museum, a lot of educators, what is your sense of where things are going? Uh, this technology changing constantly, pedagogical methods, governments come and go and they change things constantly. Uh, mm. Where does the whole thing go? Uh, where, which shares should I buy? Should I buy share, STEM shares, uh, STEAM shares, uh, STEAM plus? 
So, yeah. Well, understandably, it's it's complicated, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I don't think I know the answer, and there's no one answer. Yeah. Some of the things that I think are quite encouraging are the drive towards authenticity. Hmm. Um, that I hear about a lot and I'm very interested in trying to kind of work with. So, um, you know, science teaching is one of the tricky areas um, because, okay, so we're involved in a research project that's happening out of Melbourne University and there's a lot of information up on the website for it, but it's got a long name, here it comes, Innovative Learning Environments and Teacher Change. Now, this is a, a four-year ARC linkage project, and it's got heavy-hitting um, academics like John Hattie and um, Wesley Imms who are driving this project. It's, got a, it's, a, it's a collaboration between the architecture or built environment department and the education department. So is that that's at City Uni, right? That's at Melbourne Uni. Melbourne Uni, okay. Uh, just... Uh little interruption just because it contains the word innovative i suppose it's worth of a lot of arc money right yeah it's expensive yeah sorry <laughs> go on uh it's a ma- it's a major four year it might be the most it's a very it might be like one of the most highly funded education research projects yeah. arc projects or something like What's, that it's objective um uh, I have to go on the website to give you the exact objective, um, but I'm and it's iletc.com or something. Uh, but but what I would say about it is in in my description, it's about the okay. So everyone knows teaching is about relationships. In this case, we're considering not only the behaviours that happen that are the behaviours of teachers and the behaviours of young people in schools, but we're also considering the relationship between those people and their behaviours and the environments or the actual rooms and spaces in which the these people meet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we've all probably seen and heard of, if we pay attention to school stuff, like some very swanky architecture that happens in some schools, right? And there's some beautiful, like they look like a five-star hotel. They've got amazing, colourful, comfortable spaces and furniture and big open atriums or little pod spaces. And then we can also think of the traditional, you know, cube classrooms with single loaded corridor with square boxes in rows and stacked on top of each other and everything in between. So what this project is actually doing, it's saying... Uh, and we've got the first initial findings and the PhDs are sort of working away on it, but they've just recently published their first interim findings and they've said, look, you can actually have innovative learning practices and teaching practices in the square box and you can actually have not innovative but really traditional like teacher-directed didactic teaching techniques in the funky kind of, you know, atrium space with the purple and orange, you know, couches. So it's really looking at, like, what's the sweet spot? What is it that makes the difference and how do these things work together uh, to provide an optimal learning environment? I just looked it up as you were talking, uh, the webpage for Innovative Learning Environments Research, and uh, just quickly so that our listeners know and know now this project will investigate how teachers can use the untapped potential of innovative learning environments to improve learning outcomes for students it will identify whether there is a link between quality teaching and effective use of ILEs and develop practical tools to assist teachers to adapt the teaching practices to maximize deeper learning so quite broad in his description, I suppose, but isn't that what all teachers really, engaged teachers are trying to do? Hopefully, and I think it is, yeah. So that's something that's very important. So getting some actual data and some actual evidence so that it's not just Pete's soapbox, I'm telling you what I think, but actually I've got some evidence to support it. And that's really what that project, and the, the museum is a, is a industry partner in that project. So we're both a site where data is captured and we've had um, Ethel Villafranca, one of the PhD candidates, come and 
to um, observe our educators working with school groups in the museum and done interviews with them and with the educators as well. And we've also attended and participated in forum sessions where proposals of PhDs, et cetera, have been discussed and presented and debated. Um, so it is quite um, a great opportunity for us. I got onto that riff, I think, because your question was too hard. And <laughs> so good. I thought it was an easy one. <laughs> yeah, look, I personally am drawn to the kind of project-based learning approaches, PBL. I'm specifically interested in project-based learning rather than problem-based learning. I do prefer a transfer of responsibility and ownership from the long-suffering, hard-working, undervalued teachers of our world onto the young people because I think that we've got ourselves into a bit of a habit as educators of feeling we need, through our needs, to have everything very tightly uh, set up and scaffolded and structured. And, of course, we have obligations to the curriculum, to the kids, to the you know, horrible high-stakes exams, to the hmm. parents. We do have those legitimate obligations. But I feel like in our uh, over-administrative, burdened lives, we're not leaving enough of the learning with the kids. Hmm. So, and those are things that move in that direction. So, making the learning intentions really explicit. Say, look, over the next six weeks, we've got to, uh, here's what the curriculum says we've got to do. And, like, we've got to understand all these things about the French Revolution. So, um, like, we've got these many hours of time together. We've got these resources. We've got the internet. We've got, like, okay, let's quickly design together how we're going to get there. Yeah. Or what if I pose a big question like uh, around the, in, the French Revolution uh, to you that's not a closed question and give you some creativity in the way you respond to it? I, I, I favour personally those kinds of approaches. So the student then will have to learn proactively by doing research using those resources instead of simply following the curriculum. Is that what you're saying? And is it perhaps this, Is it perhaps the, you know, the, the target of real education, moving away from prescribed curricula, more towards student-led, research-led, or project-led education? Uh, so it's about that authenticity. So mm. um, it's about having purpose, Choice and ownership over the work that we uh, that we need to do. That's rightful, righteous work. It's got to mean something to me. And I'm a fussy eater. Like I was not yeah. a great kid at school. You know, I was disengaged from school. You know, so I struggled to get through. So I feel kind of quite passionate about trying to respect the young person, their individuality, their their right to have a voice in what, in how their, their days are being spent, like hours and hours yeah. of their lives. So when they come to the museum, I want them to think and act like a, like a curator does, like a professional does, like a historian would, like a scientist would. Let's analyse this. Let's hypothesise what that's for. Then let's try and find some information. And it's not just me spouting it out. And so I try to, and, you know, without... I mean, my Twitter handle is Verge of Peril. I, I, I try to remind myself every day to, to try to spend as much time as I can at the place where I'm not completely comfortable if it is offering other people more agency. Hmm. Now, you asked about STEM and that stuff. Oh, before we, before we launch into STEM, uh, I just wanted to ask about design, which is maybe we should start calling it STEMD. So design could be included. Oh, design, that. yeah. Yeah, because yeah. design plays such a big part of MAAS, well, I would imagine, from looking outside in. Mm. Uh, how has that impacted the way that you guys will do your PBL and uh, get your content out there? Uh, yes, design is uh, a beautiful way of thinking about how to respond to both opportunities and needs. And it's a lovely process 
that we can apply very flexibly. So I like that two-diamond approach where you start from a particular identified need or an um, or an opportunity, and then you go uh, what is it? You go out. You're thinking about what are all the things that I can find out about this to get a really good, strong context to get a broad understanding of what this what this issue really is, and then bringing it back in again to a, a possible point at which I'm saying this is a prototype now and then to actually uh, test that prototype and then to test it as broadly as possible. So to go out again wide a second time and get real-world feedback on what I thought might be a good approach and further refine that. Uh, What exactly is design, if you could um, define it, if at all possible? Sometimes it confuses me. Uh, It's got something to do with aesthetics, um, with the shapes of objects, it could be products, it could be it could be art. It's not exactly art, is it? It's it is it's not art. Applied. Yeah. I <laughs> just put it out there as yep. the dude who did the Masters of Design Science. Please okay. don't call us artists. <laughs> What's your take on that, Peter? Why like I can understand what mathematics is and why it fits in STEM, but why should the D, the design be in STEM? Okay, well, we've, we haven't gone with STEM at MAS. We've gone with STEAM. Yeah, that's where the arts is clearly. So we're the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. So if we were to go with STEM, I'm not sure that we would be doing, we would be optimising the opportunities of both including people as the widest possible audience participation hmm. in interest uh, with the with the ideas that can be developed through and uh, by our collection, um, and also it wouldn't necessarily yeah it wouldn't cover the full spectrum of what we're doing and and I yeah. would suggest that design might might fit in as a sort of could I argue it was an applied arts practice. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, that's, An applied that's art, so. Yeah. So the museum's gone with that, and we actually have a centre for STEAM, which is a national uh, centre where we've got a range of activities and um, and efforts and events which uh, seek to bring forward that idea. So, for example, we've done. Um, so we every year we do the shape exhibition, which is the end of it's the best uh, actually it's a celebration of ex of really great major projects from the HSC in the subjects of design and technology, industrial technology and textiles and design, which is three of the I think five TAS or technological and applied studies subjects that you can do at HSC. Hmm. Um, is there's a food technology and agricultural technology. They were not, they're not included in shape at the moment. Now, they are really about the first thing you have to do if you're doing one of those subjects, where certainly if you're doing design and technology, let's say, is you need to identify a real-world need for something that doesn't exist yet. So you need to do an audit of your world and then propose that the world could be better if there was a dot, dot, dot. Hmm. And then you need to go about actually assessing whether or not that statement is validated enough, and then you need to go through the design process and and manifest some kind of physical or service-style response to it. So to me, what design is, is, and it's kind of what the museum stands for in a way, it's about how to make the world better. Hmm. Maybe give us some practical examples of exhibits in the museum that you know would would highlight a design aspect of an artifact, be it you know, a computer or you know, you've got the you've got a few planes and helicopters and rockets and stuff like that. Uh, which of those would be there to highlight technology rather than design and vice versa? And maybe once you've done that, talk about a product that you have made that went through the design process. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's called a lowball. That's a slight Dorothy Dick's question, Marcus. <laughs> I don't know what he's um, talking about. I do. <laughs> um, 
but your your question was asking about an object in the museum's collection, was it? Yeah, that that is yep. an exemplar of something that shows design, the design aspect of an artifact, rather than and the, com the complexity of its mechanical components, perhaps, or what it does physically. Oh my gosh! Uh, <laughs> look, there's just that's not an easy question. <laughs> it's not an easy question. Um, one of the, uh, the things that's really interesting about what technology affords us and why we're quite interested in, um, we've, we've still got computer labs in the museum and why we think they're important and they're contextualised uh, in a world where a lot of it is like a, a piece of material culture, a physical thing. Um, is that you can model things using computers. And this would be very much up Seymour Papert's kind of alley. Um, so Scratch yeah. as, a, as a learning platform would be where you could model um, a volcano, right? Okay, so you, or you could model a steam engine and you could build that model and you could kind of say, well, there's got to be coal going here and then there's got to be uh, water going here and then there's, with you know, I can see that that can create pressure and energy and drive pistons and that can turn these crankshafts and wheels can turn and we can have motion. So you could model that. And models are something that the, we've got some amazing models in our collection. Hmm. And um, so, for example, we've got the model of the Sydney Opera House roof. So it's a, it's a wooden circle of of beautiful i don't know what type of wood it is but it's a uh it's a circle and it's utzon's model which shows that if you cut slices out of this like pie you can end up with this arrangement of uh curved uh shapes and they are that's the way the sales of this you know incredible building were that was part of the, the design process and the construction principles un underlying the Sydney Opera House. Right. I think uh, I think it's a great thing you mentioned because as we're talking about design, because that's what the Opera House, that's what makes the Opera House distinctively different to any other Opera House, isn't it? It's not that it's acoustic or it's really the design, the sales of the building, how it fits in its environment. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so like that would be one example that kind of mm. springs to mind. Yep. Now, Marcus has fed me a question which I'd be very happy to talk about because <laughs> we also, um, uh, in our learning team, we started with, we, we had a problem. We'd been teaching Scratch for a little while. And by the way, I absolutely am a, a convert to like why coding matters and mm. it's because coding is a way of inventing interesting stuff and thereby making the world better. And initially, someone, I'd been doing all this, I was a master of the timeline. Like I could do any kind of non-linear editor that you could throw at me. <laughs> um, so whether it was for music or for video, I, I was really comfortable in that kind of a paradigm. But when I was introduced to Scratch, I was kind of at sea because suddenly I couldn't see the beginning and the end and I couldn't sort of see it on a horizon view and I just didn't quite get it for quite a while. Hmm. Which part didn't you get? Was it the like the algorithmic nature of programming, the shapes? What blocked it was you? The, it, was the, it was the rules, the, the kind of, the, it was algorithms really. Hmm. Hmm. It, was, it was this way that I can... I can I can set up this little set of rules that will respond in this way, and then if I if I put an input into that, I can then ask it to express itself in this way, and so that was much more modular than I was yeah. used to thinking. Yeah. Right. So it took me quite a while to get on board that train, and it was only once I started making lists for music in Scratch, and understanding that whoa, I can kind of get scales happening as a like little <laughs> function that I really started to go, I get this, this is awesome. Hmm. And then we knew that Scratch was appealing, it was designed to appeal, it's got it's a skews primary in terms of the look and feel of it. And I was, I knew about other 
programming languages, but I didn't have the skills. And a colleague came into my team, James Oliver, and he's he's a like code Nazi. He's awesome. Like he <laughs> could code in any language, what you know, and and just deliver like some incredible, beautiful <laughs> project. You know, if you asked him, so so I kind of said, so what's another good language? And he said, look, there's a lot of a lot of energy in Arduino. You know, a lot of people are building fantastic projects with Arduino. So that would be a good one to try. So, and we, we tossed up Python and Arduino and we said, okay, we'll give Arduino a go first because it's got that, like it's about the turning on the lights and something you can straight, straight away see that's not on the screen. So we went that way. And so we just kind of dived in and we bought a stack of LEDs and resistors and breadboards and some hookup wire and we just jumped in with Blink and said, hey, we're going to do an Arduino course. And everyone went, oh, yeah, that, that sort of belongs at the museum. We'll sign up for that. <laughs> and then it was really hard because there was logic faults galore. So we were working with kids and they were following you know, along with the, the first examples just to hook up an LED. And we've got 15 or 16 kids doing this at the same time. And every, it's new to all of us. And... Before we could get to like where it starts to get fun, like you can really play with the LED, there were these dumbass logic forks, you know. So the wire's in and you, it looks perfect. The circuit looks absolutely perfect, but it's not working. And you'd pull the wire out and put it back in and it wouldn't work. And you'd take it out and put it back in and it would work. And you go, what's with that, the man? <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> so, um, so we did that for a little while and we all agreed we could do with some scaffolding here and so we looked around in the market and we discovered something called the lily pad proto snap which is like a little um board uh, smaller than the size of a uh, novel you know just a little board it had it's got a little um it's got a lily pad round arduino in the middle and the printed yes, circuit board, the lily pads a uh, round shaped interface for a, a microprocessor and it's designed for e-textiles. Um, so it's designed to be uh, sewn into a garment or plush toy or something like that. And then with the uh, silver thread that came with the ProtoSnap kit, you would um, hook up, um, you know, different components. And so, for example, you could make the eyes on your teddy bear glow or different. you could come up with interesting different fun projects, right? But in its ProtoSnap format, before you, it was designed that you would first plug it in and learn to code the buzzer and the LEDs and the uh, variable light resistor and these different components on the board. And then you would snap the board into its pieces and then reconnect it using the silver thread into its application, right? It's a very nice model. But what we liked about it was it kind of had a little laboratory of Arduino coding activities built in from the word go. So you already had your circuit built, but then you weren't limited to that circuit. You could then release the pieces from the snapboard and go on and build your own project. So if I understand right, what you liked about this technology was that there was uh, content that the students could actively engage with that didn't require all this wiring and hooking things together that caused so many problems with the bedborn Arduinos. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, that's correct. Right. And it, yeah, it, it meant that we could get a certain level of competence and confidence yep. with coding so that you weren't doubting everything in the system mm -hmm. when something didn't work. You could kind of say, okay, I'm pretty. I know that code works because I've run it in a working system. So if it, so, there's got to be a problem with the circuitry, which is a very different starting point to it's not working, and I have no idea why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you identified the need, which was breadboarding sucks. It's hard to do. You can get a lot of mistakes there. You wanted to get to the point where, for beginners, you wanted to get to the point where you just focus on the coding. So how then did you go about? I guess, building your product, which is a daughter board for, for an Arduino mm. that uh, takes all, this hassle, all these hassles away. And how much design mm. did you put in it? How many, how much, like how did you apply the principles of design in building that product? So I'm sure you, 
I'm sure you got it right the first time and you only made one product. Perfect. Version <laughs> <laughs> one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because we're geniuses, you know. <laughs> uh, so it's about six years of trial and error. And um, we were lucky that uh, we had some colleagues in the museum who were confident with circuit boards and actually, you know, had a little oven. We don't, it's not, the museum's had a few changes since then, but we had someone who could bake a little circuit board for us. And so we drew a, a little line drawing of something that was a much more limited version of what the Lilypad ProtoSnap had offered us. And we made three and we tested it out. And basically, I think we've had six iterations of the board uh, since then. And we've now got a thing called ThinkerShield. The ThinkerShield. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's great about the ThinkerShield? What's great about the ThinkerShield is it is the most reliable and uh, robust, ready-to-use-in-the-classroom uh, technology platform for learning Arduino that we've been able to find yet. Hmm. Would you say it just lets you get on with it? <laughs> and together with our guidebook that goes with it, it, it really means that you can straight away get doing and so we've called the whole project Get On With It. Um, oh, okay. So if, I, if I'm, a, I'm a teacher, uh, Peter, and um, I get one of your thinker shields and I plug it onto my Arduino, connect it to my computer, and then without having to play around with breadboards and wires and other loose components, I can actually use the components that are on the shield to demonstrate concepts like movement. I think there's an accelerometer on there so you can detect movement, right? And experiment with a code that relates to the component or whatever the component might be. Is that the idea there that out of the box mm. is ready to play with and learn coding yep. experiment? Yeah. Yeah. So actually it doesn't have an accelerometer, but it's got a range of other uh, input and output options. And the idea is that it's, well, it's like trainer wheels, uh, on a on a bike on a bicycle, so hmm. um, the, it's not what we're trying to get is for people to kind of be somewhat literate and confident to invent their own things. So we want them on the breadboards, actually, as soon as possible, um, right? But not right at the yeah. beginning. But we want to make the curve a little smoother, right? In yeah. terms of the, the learning curve, a little smoother, yeah. And also, we want people who might rule themselves out if they get a couple of early fails. Mm. And just go, yeah, I'm not very technical. We want to get those people over that kind of hump so that they start to think, oh, yeah, maybe I can imagine something that I might want to make with this. Yeah. So thinkershield.naz.museum, thinkershield.maas.museum uh, is where you can find out more about it or even get involved in one of our projects. Um, we have uh, probably, um, well, we've got some units of work that have been written by the Department of Education, Crack the Code, that's for Stage 4. We've got units of work that have been written by the New South Wales Education Standards Authority. So we've got a Stage 3 and a Stage 5 unit written by NESA. And um, so there's, there's beginning to be some support for this application in classrooms. We've got some philanthropic funding to enable us to help you out if you're a school that could do with some financial support to get this uh, across this. And we've also got uh, NESA-endorsed teacher professional development so you can get up proficient hours endorsed hours as a New South Wales school teacher if you come and do one of our training courses. And um, once again, we don't think all schools should get thinker shields, although that would be great. Uh, we, we just want to put, we just, this has worked for us and maybe it will work for you. Yeah. Right? If, if, you're, if, if what you need is, is Makey Makey and Ozobots, cool, go for it. But for some people who want to do syntax-based coding but actually manifest real-world projects, Arduino is a good choice. And mm -hmm. if you're going that way, we think this is a helpful thing to consider. So what age is this appropriate for? Or what stages rather? So we're, 
we've got these units of work for stages three, four, and five. So that's that's the, the, the top two years of primary school, years five and six. The mandatory TAS is a kind of no-brainer, which mainly gets done in year seven, um, but sometimes across seven and eight and stage four. And stage five have the options if they're looking at a design and technology and industrial technology pathway, or perhaps if you're thinking about your computer software and computer engineering subjects, then it can be quite, uh, it, it would be worth considering for those, uh, those areas. We're, we're most interested, of course, in can we get it across curricula? Um, so any school that was wanting to deploy it within a project-based setting where you maybe had your history, your maths, your English, and your, your PDHPE classes wanting to work together with your computer classes on this, we would go, yeah, baby, <laughs> let's go with that. Great. Well, I think um, we need to, um, because I'm just uh, looking at the clock, uh, we've just hit an hour, Peter, so there's <laughs> so much to talk about. But I'd like to um, just start wrapping it up with uh, a few closing questions. Could you tell us uh, if there's any person living or not, uh, fictional or not, that has really influenced the way that you think, either personally or in the context of education? Uh, yeah. Well, I mentioned, I've mentioned a couple in mm -hmm. this podcast already. So like James Paul G, in terms of how I think about learning. So who is James? James James Paul G, G double E. So he is definitely somebody. Another person who's probably my all-time hero is a guy called Ron Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R, -E uh, from Expeditionary Learning now in the, uh, he works in the US. His book, An Ethic of Excellence, I would make mm. that compulsory reading for parents and teachers. Mm. It's a thin book, but it changed my life. I, I think in terms of technology, I've been very, very inspired by Kevin Kelly, who uh, hippies will remember from the Whole Earth Catalogue, but I, I think his book, What Technology Wants, is a really, it's a, he basically makes an argument that technology is the seventh biological kingdom. It's a like crazy, <laughs> amazing story, and um, he calls it the technium, and like that is a brilliant, interesting uh, riff of a book. And he's really, he, he really is about, we've only, each of us have only got to make the world a little bit better for the world to get a lot better. Yeah. So he's a real optimist and he's really inspiring. Yeah. And in the museum world, I've mentioned Nina Simon. She's definitely one of my guiding lights. You know, she's written a lot about uh, really socialising the museum, and she's got a couple of really great, really great books. But the last book is called The Art of Relevance, mm -hmm. because and that I really, I really am trying to pay attention to her guidance in that book because I feel like in a world of increasingly immersive, recreational and entertaining options in a world that's going headlong into the visor or the mixed reality kind of space and where we're still very much enculturated into the high art form of Hollywood cinema, museums can feel a little bit underwhelming sometimes. So yeah. people, people like Nina Simon really remind us that we can be immensely powerful as long as we sustain that personal relationship to the ideas, to the struggles. So, so she's really uh, awesome. There's another woman, she's got a, another American academic who I really find very inspiring. She writes brilliantly on the future of schooling, which is one of your earlier questions to me. And her, she's Elaine Gurian, G-U-R-I-A-N. Her actual name is Elaine Human Gurian, but you'll find it under Elaine Gurian. Um, so if you're interested in museum learning theory, uh, she's somebody who's writing uh, still. She's retired from her museum directorships. That's a few people who well. I think are interested. 
Okay, I just asked for one. <laughs> but thanks for that. Like, uh, we got a lot more value. Great <laughs> answer. Uh, I also wanted to say that, uh, yeah, the, the museum, especially the Powerhouse Museum, I think just touching on one of your points, is like that one place where I can go take the kids and it connects us to both the past and the future. So you've got exhibits that go back a very long time. Like the museum opened up in the 1800s, uh, 1879. And then there's all futuristic uh, space technology and uh, computer technology, like all future stuff. So that's one of the few places that can actually do that really well. And perhaps museum is one of them. Thanks. We try. So thank you, Peter. It's been my pleasure to talk to you guys. Thank you for the opportunity. It was amazing. Thank you. So uh, if people want to get into contact with you or want to do some PD with yourself at MAS, uh, how can they get into contact with you and where, what websites and Twitters and what have you should they visit? Sure. Uh, so the museums, uh, we've just refreshed our le- the learning section of the website, so please critique it. Um, so that's mas.museum forward slash learn. You can contact the amazing uh, learning team and really my it's my colleagues who make me look good on, on most days of the week, but you can get us all as a group on learn at mas.museum. And uh, if you want to hit me up on Twitter, I'm at Verge of Peril. Wow. Is it one word? Yep, one word. We'll link that in the... <laughs> Great. Thank you, Peter. It's my pleasure. That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Stemiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.